Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We have a fantastic episode tonight, but before we get into that, let's go over our week in review. Last week, Paula brought you the Ohio's prehistoric race of giants. That's right. I said giants. A long time ago, there were reports of large skeletons being unearthed, especially around Indian mounds. Then, on Wednesday, Dan and Mike brought you the Millfield Coal Disaster of 1930 on Ohio Mysteries Backroads. If you have not listened to any of these episodes, please go back and check those out for sure. As always, Paula, Mike, Dan, and myself want to thank all of you for your continued support. Also, please consider being a Patreon member. Head on over to patreon.com slash ohiomysteries if you would like to help us with our costs of the podcast. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our award-winning journalist who spent 30-plus years telling these kinds of stories at the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. I haven't used the word diabolical very often. To me, it conveys a level of evil beyond what passes for average in the world of psychopathic killers. But when I heard this story... It's the first thing that came to mind. We're talking about a self-proclaimed fortune teller who makes his money finding the bodies of missing children. Only in this case, he's the reason they are missing to begin with. This was the plot twist in the first and only hanging in Williams County, and it happened back when Northwest Ohio was a primitive frontier and early settlers faced a lot of risks without having to add fortune tellers to the list. Here's what we think we know about the life of Andrew F. Tyler before we meet him in 1847. He was 35 years old, putting his birth year about 1812. He told people he had left a wife and two children in Morgan County, 
On Ancestry.com, I found an Andrew F. Tyler marrying a Catherine Venata in 1841 in Morgan County, so that very well could be him. He also served as a private in the U.S. Army, reportedly joining in order to evade civil authorities who wanted him for some sort of crime committed in Michigan. I found an Andrew F. Tyler, born in 1812, who enlisted in the military in 1839 in Pennsylvania. So again, just a guess, but it's quite possible Andrew started his life a little east of Ohio's borders. We also have a physical description. He was on the short side, thick-set, had a dark complexion with black hair and brown eyes, and according to one historian, a most forbidding countenance that suggested he came from very low parentage, whatever that means. By 1847, Tyler had left his wife and kids back in Morgan County, and he took off, wandering the countryside alone, earning a meager living as a fortune teller. This is what he was doing in June of that year when fate blew him into Williams County. Now, there were fewer than 5,000 people in all the county at that time, though the population was starting to boom. There hadn't been 400 people in all the county a decade earlier. Fortune-telling was a popular pastime, so Tyler no doubt found willing clients as he plied his trade among the settlers, knocking on the doors of farmhouses and offering his services. On June the 13th, 1847, he showed up on the doorstep of the Shamps' home, just outside the village of West Unity. Peter and Ann Shamps had come to Ohio from New Jersey. They spent a little time in Wayne County, in the northeast part of the state, first, but it was not a happy time. They buried two children there, Henry and Charlotte. In 1844, they made their way to Williams County with two other children, an infant son, John, and their toddler, David. They purchased 120 acres in Jefferson Township, land that is now on the north side of County Road K and about a quarter mile west of US 127. They built a log house and they farmed the land. And Peter made additional income from his work as a veterinarian and a shoemaker. They also added a daughter, Susan, and another son, George, to their growing family. The Shamps were doing very well. Andrew Tyler noticed this when he stopped by to tell their fortunes. Before leaving, he saw Peter Shamp handling several dollar bills. In 1847, bills were a rare currency and hinted at wealth. After visiting the Shamps, Tyler continued wandering the community telling fortunes, and soon he was discussing his craft at the home of Adam Heckerthorne. There, he found a rapt pupil in Adam's 18-year-old brother, Daniel. Daniel Heckerthorne had some sort of mental disability. Newspapers later would use descriptions of the time when describing him, including dull-witted, and calling him an imbecile. He was completely riveted by Tyler and his magical ability to see into the future. 
Tyler clearly knew what he was doing when he pulled Daniel into his web even deeper by reading his future and telling Daniel he was in store for a heap of trouble. Well, Daniel didn't want to wait around for that and agreed it might be best if he left Williams County. He said he had people back in Wayne and Stark County and so maybe should go there. Tyler jumped on the suggestion and began to put his diabolical plan into place. He told Daniel he'd take him back east. He'd even pay him 50 cents a day plus expenses to become his apprentice, teaching him the art along the way. But first, they needed one final payday in Williams County. Tyler told Daniel he needed him to lure one of Peter Shamp's children into the woods and offer the child an arsenic-laced piece of candy. Tyler then presented the tainted candy to Daniel. The child would eat the candy and die. Daniel would then hide the body. During this time, Tyler would be out of the county, giving himself an alibi. He would return in a week, hear of the grieving family, and offer to use his clairvoyant skills to locate the child. The Shamps would no doubt pay handsomely for this. Then Tyler and Daniel would head off east. Tyler told Daniel he knew the plan would work because he had done this thing before. Daniel agreed to the plan. But Tyler wanted to be sure he wouldn't change his mind, so he left him with an unvarnished threat. He told Daniel that if he failed to carry out this task, or if he told anyone about it, Tyler would return and kill him. On June the 20th, a Sunday, about nine in the morning, the eldest champ child, David, who was now five, went outside to play. Across the street, waiting for this opportunity, was Daniel Heckerthorne. Little David's carefree adventuring had taken him to the end of the lane, where Heckerthorne called to him so they could play together. They walked through the champs' fields, then Heckerthorne lured him into the woods. They stopped at a large hollow elm tree near Leatherwood Creek, about a quarter of a mile from the farm fields, and Heckerthorne offered the boy the poison stick of candy. Little David sucked on the candy for a few minutes. Then he started to cry. The candy was making him sick. Heckerthorne watched as the boy's complexion started to change colors, but it was taking far too long for him to die. Impatient for it to be over, Heckerthorne grabbed David by the heels and swung him against the gnarled knot of a birch tree, bashing his head and killing him instantly. Heckerthorne stuffed Daniel's lifeless form into the hollow of the elm tree, and he covered it with leaves, rotten wood, and anything else he could find at hand. Then Heckerthorne returned to his brother's home to wait for Tyler's return. As the morning wore on, 
David's parents became increasingly worried about the absence of their son. When Peter and Anne failed to find him, they enlisted their neighbors in the search. Even Adam and Daniel Heckerthorn joined in the search. It continued on Monday, the number of searchers growing to over a hundred people who scoured the fields and woods around the Champs homestead. Turns out, Andrew Tyler hadn't even left town yet. Someone who knew he was still about went to him and asked if he could use his powers of divination to find David. So about dinner time that Monday, Tyler showed up at the Champs' house to lend his paranormal skills to the effort. When Peter returned from a period of searching, he found Tyler already at his home, and he offered the man a $5 reward if he could locate David. Tyler said, of course. First, he chastised Peter for not calling him sooner, then told Peter he would find the boy that night. Tyler led a group of searchers out into the fields and woods. Occasionally, he would pause, cut his deck of cards and read them, then change their direction. At one point, Tyler said the cars were indicating David was near water, beneath rotten wood and brush. The grieving father asked Tyler if that meant his son was dead. I think he is dead, Tyler said. If he is found tonight, he may be alive. Then Tyler told Peter to make a wish. I wish that I will find my child alive and well, Peter said. To which Tyler shook his head and said, You will not get your wish. For the next two days, Tyler led the searchers, up to 300 of them now, from throughout the region, on a merry goose chase, consulting his cards occasionally and sending them this way and that. This was Tyler's problem. Because he was called upon before he could speak to Heckerthorn and return on his own timetable, he didn't know where the body was. But Daniel Heckerthorn was now on the minds of some people. You see, he left the search for David's body that past Sunday after only an hour, and he never returned to help, not on Monday, not on Tuesday. Being the only able-bodied male in the region not to be helping out, his absence was very conspicuous. So a couple of people went to his house to inquire about him. There they found a young man so weighed down by guilt, he confessed immediately and told the searchers where to find little David's body. Once Heckerthorn was in custody, he also spilled all the details of the plot, including the name of its architect, Andrew F. Tyler. A group of men were sent to capture Tyler. They learned he was staying with the Zuver family in the hamlet of Kunkel. They arrived to find him seated at the table, eating supper. Tyler made a move as if he intended to try and escape out the back door, but the men caught him and dragged him all the way back to the county seat of Bryan and its log cabin jail on North Lynn Street. On June the 24th, 
an inquest was held, though it wasn't certain that local residents would be willing to wait for a trial. Newspaper reports said 500 to 600 people assembled and seemed on the verge of tearing the fortune teller to pieces. But the inquest went on, with Daniel Heckerthorne testifying that Andrew Tyler had put him up to it, and Tyler swearing he had no idea what the clearly mentally deranged Daniel was talking about. The two men were taken back to the Williams County Jail, but only briefly. Officials weren't sure the small building would be enough to stop an angry mob from getting and lynching the men. So they transferred the pair to the Lucas County Jail in Maumee. At that time, it was the right of someone accused of a hanging offense to have an Ohio Supreme Court justice serving as judge. Tyler and Heckerthorne both chose this option, which delayed their trials for months until a justice became available. Tyler was the first to face a jury in July of 1848. The courtroom was standing room only during the two-day trial. Among the evidence that prosecutors produced was that gnarled knot of tree where little David's head had been bashed. The wood still had the boy's blood and hair on it. Historians said this little gruesome piece of history was actually preserved for years to come. The jury took less than three hours to deliberate, and they found Tyler guilty. He was sentenced to hang on January the 26th, 1849. Heckerthorne's trial didn't take place until November of 1848, but it ended with the same conviction and the same sentence with his execution date set for April the 20th, 1849. Now, in the days before Andrew Tyler's scheduled execution, a construction crew built a gallows next to the Williams County Prison. It was said Tyler talked, laughed, and joked with the men who were building it, believing up until the end that someone would acknowledge his innocence and save him. By law, the execution was supposed to be done privately, so Sheriff Daniel Langle erected an enclosure around the gallows. But the night before the execution, Peter Shamp's neighbors and friends showed up and destroyed the wooden fence, insisting that people be allowed to see the old wretch hang. They burned the boards of the enclosure in a bonfire so they couldn't be retrieved and rebuilt. So, the sheriff had little choice but to hold the hanging in public view. And what a gruesome business it was. By noon of January the 26th, 1849, some 3,000 people had descended on Bryan, a town of just 250 people. As a matter of fact, the crowd might have even been greater if it weren't for an unexpected January thaw that had flooded some of the dirt roads leading into town. The state militia was called on to provide order, but there was no unrest. 
the town center had a festival atmosphere. A band was hired to provide music, and men, women, and children were in a good-natured, even jolly mood, warming themselves by bonfires and waiting to see little David's killer finally, presumably, sent to hell. A local newspaper later detailed Andrew Tyler's last hour. About 1 p.m., he was taken to the scaffold, accompanied by a minister who read some remarks and led the crowd in a hymn. Tyler was offered a chance to speak and used his final words to insist on his innocence before kneeling and asking God to forgive the people who were about to kill him in error. Then things went disturbingly wrong. Tyler had insisted on being hung by a rope with no slack. Now, the law generally determines slack based on weight and height to increase the chances that the prisoner's neck would be quickly broken and avoid unnecessary suffering. But after Tyler's repeated insistence, the sheriff agreed to just one foot of slack. So, Tyler's head was covered with a cap, the noose was put around his neck, and after he was bade farewell, the trapdoor was sprung. Predictably, the fall did not break Tyler's neck. Instead, the knot in the noose slipped under his chin, not allowing the rope to tighten at all. Witnesses said at first Tyler hung still, but then, as he began to suffocate, he struggled mightily from the end of the rope. Many in the crowd looked away, even began to walk away, Wanting to see someone die for a horrible crime, apparently that's not the same as having to watch someone tortured for it. After a time, the sheriff decided to step in. He had Tyler raised through the trap door, then grabbed his hand and helped him to his feet. While a gasping Tyler stood and waited for a second execution attempt, the sheriff lengthened the slack by another four feet, despite Tyler's continued insistence to keep it short. For some reason, an ex-sheriff at the scene, Levi Cunningham, went up the stairs to the scaffold, took Tyler's hand, and asked Tyler if he wanted to assert his innocence again, to which Tyler yelled out to the crowd, I am innocent. But those were not his final words. The sheriff put the newly adjusted noose around Tyler's neck again, and just before the trap door was sprung a second time, Tyler was heard saying, For God's sake, shorten my rope. This time, the rope did its job. Tyler scarcely struggled, and his lifeless body was left to hang for 30 minutes before he was taken down. He was placed in a coffin and carted away, and since no one claimed his body, it was offered to local physicians for medical research. Dr. John Paul of Bryan dissected the body, then pickled it in a barrel of whiskey. The barrel sat in the hall of the log jail with a loose lid, and reportedly anyone who had a desire to was permitted to lift the lid and look inside. Later, 
Tyler's remains were kept in a live vat in James Allen's ashery at the northwest corner of Beach and Maple Streets. That was until the day that a group of children, on their way home from school, fished the skeleton out and played with it. Tyler's bones were later stored in a wood house north of the jail, but that building was torn down in 1868, and the whereabouts of Tyler's remains were lost to history. Like Tyler, Hecker Thorne had also been found guilty and was sentenced to death by a jury. But after Tyler's botched execution, few people had an appetite for it. Ohio Governor Sieber Ford took into account Hecker Thorne's diminished mental capacity and commuted his sentence to life in prison. But he wasn't there for life. In November of 1860, another Ohio governor, Salmon Chase, pardoned Heckerthorne with a condition that he remain in the care of Adam Treat in Medina County and obey his directions in all things until Treat felt that Heckerthorne could care for himself and not be a threat to the general public. We don't know what happened after that. There is no further record of Heckerthorne's life or death. Peter and Ann Champ remained in Williams County and ended up having ten children in all, although only two lived to adulthood, which might seem shocking for this modern time, but was actually not out of the question for that rugged era. It was said Peter Champ never recovered from the grief of having his son murdered, and people could see the crushing weight on him the rest of his life. As to Daniel Heckerthorne's revelation that Tyler had told him he had done this thing before, well, that will forever be a mystery. Since Tyler insisted on his innocence until his dying breath, there was no hope for getting him to reveal who else he may have killed in order to financially benefit from his tarot cards. Like I said, diabolical. Much of the research in this story is owed to the Bryan Times, where Kevin Maynard, a local history lover, did a five-part series on this topic back in 1999. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every one of our episodes, hop on over to ohiomysteries.com. And we'll see you back here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. From the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions, you have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. 
Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.